The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? I think that there's this interesting conversation that happens in the recovery community when it comes to choice theory. Right, right. (laughs) And so, my question to you was, Did you really mismanage your pain or did you do the best you could with the tools and the skill set that you had growing up in a dysfunctional family? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to what you said. And you're right. There is this notion in the recovery community that everything is a choice. And while I think, yes, we, we do make certain choices. That's just what we do as human beings. Like some of it is you're only making certain choices based on the level of consciousness that you're in at that moment, right? And as I look back, I can surely say that, that yes, like now I can say, okay, like maybe I would have done certain things better knowing what I know now. But back then, yeah, I think I handled it the best way that I could. And things just started to, to stack up for me even like more and more as I got older. And I, I started to initially turn to food. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I- That is so many of our first addictions. Yeah. Myself included. Sugar. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with my friend, Doug Bose, who is the host of the uh, Adversity Advantage podcast, which I actually guested on. It's such a good episode just a few weeks ago. So if you want to check that out, I highly suggest it. This week, we are talking about recovery. And Doug is coming on to the podcast to have a really interesting discussion about recovery and the themes in our stories that are so similar. As many of you know, I just hit my 11 years which is crazy. I cannot believe that 11 years ago, I chose recovery. It was the best decision that I ever made. And, you know, I think that having these conversations about how to live sober and how to feel good living sober are really important. That's not to say that life doesn't show up. It absolutely does. But with the right tools and support, you can really live a life beyond your wildest dreams. That's my experience. I know it's Doug's too. And so, you know, I just want to take a second to give thanks, honestly, for this community, for all of your guys' vulnerability. So many of you have reached out to me asking for help or just wanting to pick my brain, which I really love. I love having these conversations with you guys. And as you know, it's always a judgment-free zone. So anybody who needs support or help getting on the path towards recovery, you can always message me. I also want to give thanks to all of the incredible women in my life who have walked this path before me and held my hand over the last 11 years. Because without community, I would not be here today. And I think that that's why I love the podcast 
because it really is just an outlet where we get to build community. That's why I love the Life Reset course, because again, it is community, community, community. And of course, at Oral House, our treatment center, again, it is community. And that's what kept me sober in those early days of my recovery. It wasn't the groups. I wasn't ready to do the groups. I wasn't ready to do a deep dive in those first 30, 60, 90 days of recovery. It was developing sober friendships and quality friendships and relating to other people and hearing other people's stories. And that inspired me to change my life. So whether you're in recovery or not, the message here is still so prevalent and so strong. It's not so much about the substances. You know, when we get sober and after we get a little bit of time under our belt, we realize that the substances aren't really the issue. I mean, of course they become a problem later on. The real issue is in our personal pain and the fact that like we don't have the necessary coping skills to process and handle and heal that pain. And so again, whether you're sober or not, this episode will still resonate. Thank you all so much. It is honestly an honor to be able to do this podcast every single week. And so with that, here is this week's episode. Enjoy it. We have so much in common in our stories. I was listening to you on the Skinny Confidential this morning on my way over here. And I was like, God, there's so many similarities and similar takeaways too. And so I can't wait for my audience to get to hear your story. And I want to start from childhood because I think that there, again, are just so many parallels and just so many takeaways. Take me back to those early childhood days. Yeah, I I appreciate the kind words. And I think you're right. There is a lot of parallels in our stories, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on my show when we recorded. And essentially like what happened is I look now, like looking back, it seems that I just mismanaged pain, trauma, insecurities in the most negative way possible. And for me, uh, that looked like this. So I grew up born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, have never left my hometown. My parents got divorced when I was five and it was a really rough divorce. And also it was at a time where families weren't breaking up. Like I was the only kid in my friend group whose parents were divorced because the divorce rate I mean, I don't know the exact rate of what it was then, but it wasn't like it is now where it's, you know, upwards of 50%. And so I started to develop this, like, what's wrong with me mentality? Like, why am I different from other kids? And that also transferred into other things like sports. I loved sports, Alexis. Like I loved playing sports. I loved watching sports. I loved listening to sports. I loved collecting baseball cards. Problem is I was about as unathletic and uncoordinated as they came. So again, I was getting cut from different sports teams. I was being picked last in gym class. Um, I wasn't getting the ball in, in certain sports. So this what's wrong with me mentality kept building up and up and up. And then, you know, as I got through grade school, um, I had no luck with girls. Like I was always wondering why girls weren't interested in me and, and why like certain uh, friends of mine were always having girlfriends and going to dances with the, with the hot girls and I wasn't. And so I was like, I just kept thinking like, and you can imagine where this is going. What's wrong with me? Like, why is this happening to me? I'm just 
continually getting caught up and wrapped up in this victim mindset. And then yeah. on, t- on top of all of that, my home life wasn't ideal. My parents barely spoke to each other. They only communicated via email. And it was a really like toxic co-parenting relationship that they had. And I'm observing all this as a kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I talk a lot about subconscious programming and belief systems. That's why I developed the Life Reset course because so many people are just unaware of how our brains work, especially in early childhood development and how eventually those messages that we receive turn into belief systems. And so it sounds like for you, the message, I mean, first of all, I will say as children, we do not have a prefrontal cortex, which is what is responsible for processing our pain and coming to sound conclusions, right? Like we don't have that frontal lobe that's firing and functioning. It doesn't really begin until around age 10, can even be a little bit later for boys. And so we're really living in like our reptilian brain for most of early childhood, which means that we are self-focused in the world. Everything is about us. And so even though your parents' divorce had nothing to do with you, even though the fact that you didn't have the skill set to make certain teams had nothing to do with you, right? Even though, and you know, of course now you're super athletic, but it's like you didn't have a dad that sat there and coached with you every single week. Was not your fault. But the messages that you receive just because we are so hyper-focused on ourselves as young children, because we don't have perspective in a worldview, is this equates to this. My parents' divorce means I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, I'm unwanted, I'm, what was the the word that you used? You know, you, that you don't fit in. That, like, like what's wrong with what's me? What's wrong with me? Like this all has to do with me. And then, of course, we go on to develop these like core sets of belief systems that carry with us throughout our lives. I really love language and I pick up when someone says something, I pick up on what they're saying. And I just want to dive into this with you for a second, because when we opened, you had talked about how you said mismanaged pain. You said, I mismanaged my pain. And I think that there's this interesting conversation that happens in the recovery community when it comes to choice theory. Right, right. (laughs) And so my question to you was, did you really mismanage your pain or did you do the best you could with the tools and the skill set that you had growing up in a dysfunctional family? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to what you said. And you're right, there is this notion in the recovery community that everything is a choice. And while I think, yes, we, we do make certain choices, that's just what we do as human beings, like some of it is you're only making certain choices based on the level of consciousness that you're in at that moment, right? And as I look back, I can surely say that, that yes, like now I can say, okay, like maybe I would have done certain things better knowing what I know now. But back then, yeah, I think I handled it the best way that I could. And things just started to, to stack up for me even like more and more as I got older. And I, I started to initially turn to food Mm-hmm. You know, and that I, is so many of our first addictions, yeah. myself included, sugar. Yeah, so I started turning to food, and I would eat like like breakfast meats for breakfast every day, pasta every night, pizza, fast food, like you name it, I ate it. And the problem was this: was that I wasn't really doing anything that different from what my friends were doing. Like you think about like my, my friends and I, we would eat pop tarts, we would eat like tasty cakes and stuff. Cause that's just, just what, standard American yeah, diet. That's just what kids yes. did. But they wouldn't gain weight, but I did. And 
So I started to feel more insecure about myself. So I would eat more of those foods. And then I'm wearing like husky pants. By the time I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, I'm getting a, a bit of a, of a gut. And again, like the what's wrong with me mentality keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I'm getting picked on. I'm getting bullied in school. Kids are telling me that I like I had Down syndrome. People like my nickname in high school was Down syndrome Doug. And I, th- and I think what happens, especially as kids, when you really haven't formed your own identity, your perception of yourself can get hijacked based on the lies that others say to you and you start to believe those lies. And that's what happened to me because obviously I didn't have Down syndrome. Obviously there wasn't anything quote unquote wrong with me, but that's what my perception was. Yeah. And that just goes back again to what I was saying about that subconscious programming. Our brains when we're younger are like little sponges and they just absorb our external environment. And then we perceive ourselves in the world as a result of what we consumed, right? What our brains consumed. We didn't have the ability, the critical thinking skills to go, is this the truth? You know, and then to make like a sound decision based off of that. And so it leads to this compounded trauma. And so you were dealing with lots of little T traumas and then some big T traumas in there as well. And eventually, you know, what do we do when we don't have coping skills? We turn to drugs and alcohol. Yeah. yeah. And there, there were so many things that I used. I used people, I used drugs, mm-hmm. I used selling drugs as a way to feel validated mm-hmm. and to feel valued because I didn't get that from certain parts of my family and certainly from the girls. And the initial moment where I got to use drugs to cope was when I was 14, went to a neighbor of mine's house and she was like, Hey, I have some weed. You want to smoke? Now, mind you, like I know like weed is, is legal in many areas now and a lot of people are choosing to use it recreationally or medically or whatever, but I want people to hear this. Like I never thought in a million years that when I took that first hit off a marijuana pipe that I would end up in jail, like that it would progress to the <laughs> point where I was making poor decision after poor decision, like nobody yeah. does. And I also want people to think about when you're smoking, like why you're doing it. Like I was doing it because I hated myself. I was doing it because I didn't want to think about what I was going through. I didn't want to think about like the girl that had rejected me yesterday. I didn't want to think about what the kids were saying to me. Yeah. And so when I took that first hit, I felt none of that. I could finally be at peace with who <laughs> I was. I didn't have to worry if I was ever going to have a girlfriend. I didn't have to worry about what my parents' relationship was going to look like. I didn't have to worry about what my athletic abilities were going to look like in the next two to three years. I could just be at peace with myself. And that, that Alexis, that feeling is what became addicting. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week so you get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Skip the trip to the grocery store, saving you the wait in long lines and ensuring that you don't waste money on excessive amounts of food. HelloFresh has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about with six recipes per week to choose from, including low calorie and carb conscious options. Warm yourself up from the inside out with limited time recipes inspired by cozy classics from around the world like beef tenderloin and cheese fondue or miso and sesame shrimp and bacon ramen. 
Customize your favorite dishes with their new Hello Custom offerings by swapping out one protein or side for another, upgrading for more of a luxe experience, or even adding protein to a veggie meal. That means more choices, more variety, and more meals truly tailored to you. I know for me as a busy mom of two kids, having HelloFresh delivered to my doorstep makes my life so much easier. HelloFresh is also 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal and the same quality. You can save on average over $65 a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. That's money back into your pocket. Go to HelloFresh.com slash reality16 and use code reality16 for up to 16 free meals and three gifts. Again, that's going to HelloFresh.com slash reality16 and use code reality16 for up to 16 free meals and three gifts. There's nothing more refreshing than hitting the reset button once in a while. If your hair is a little overdue for the same treatment, it's time for the clarifying detox shampoo from Way. I personally am a once a week washer. I do that because I found that my hair actually grows faster and is healthier overall when I only wash once a week. I did have to do hair training to get it there, but it is so worth it. But when I do wash, it's really important for me to use a detox shampoo to make sure that I'm really clarifying my hair getting out all of that dry shampoo, all of that buildup. So that way my hair looks super fresh when I'm out of the shower. Our hair can take a lot of experimentation and sometimes outright neglect, but it's never too late to hit the reset button with the clarifying detox shampoo from Way. It's important to use this once a week to neutralize product buildup, oil, dirt, hard water from your hair and scalp without stripping away the moisture. A combination of apple cider vinegar and keratin exfoliates and balances your scalp plus smooths frizz and creates a lustrous shine. It's great for all hair types, even hair treated with keratin chemicals, color or a Brazilian blowout. Bonus, they're using their signature fragrance, which I love, that completely hides the smell of the apple cider vinegar. So you don't have to worry about that. Infused with their signature and dreamy Melrose Place fragrance with rose, bergamot, lychee, cedarwood, white musk. It is to die for. Way was created by celebrity hairstylist Jen Adkin to create the first socially connected hair care brand. Explore their collection of cruelty-free, sulfate, and paraben-free hair care body care and fragrance products today. When you're ready to undo some damage, hit the reset button with the Way Detox Shampoo. Go to theway.com and use code reality to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's theway.com slash reality. Hey, beautiful people. My name is Elisa Reynolds, and I'm the executive chef and founder of My Two Cents LA and host of My Last Meal, a new podcast that asks people from all walks of life, whether it's musicians, celebrities, artists, chefs, scientists, Renaissance men and women, what their last meal on earth would be and why. So don't forget to tune in on Fridays. You can find us anywhere you can listen to podcasts. So why not? Let me tell you about the last meal. I don't believe in gateway drugs. Um, (laughs) I just personally don't. 
I don't think dare was effective. I don't think abstinence-based right. like thinking is effective. I think the bottom line is this. When you grow up in a sick society, in a household with parents who have not done their own work, it is a recipe for disaster. And when you don't have the tools to heal, I mean, there's plenty of kids who did smoke pot with me in high school. Pot was my first drug too. And who turned out just fine. The difference was for me, I had all of this pain that I needed to escape from and that I need to escape my reality with. And so it felt really good and it soothed parts of my brain that were highly triggered that, you know, most kids maybe weren't at the time. And so it did something different for us. And, you know, that's where that obsession starts to come into play, right? It's like that obsession with just feeling normal or feeling good or feeling numb for the first time takes over. Right. And you're spot on. Like, I don't think if dare worked, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Right. (laughs) And I also think, I also personally don't think pot is a quote unquote gateway drug either. I mean, I did for a while because I always like anecdotally look back. That was your story. That was my story. Absolutely. But I had somebody, I was talking to somebody who studied like the neuroscience of stuff like this, like years ago. And she said, and I was telling her this and she's like, you know, Doug, she was like, if you didn't have the pain and the trauma, like, would you have still smoked? And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know. She's like, so what came first, the trauma or the drug? And I'm like, you know, that's a really good point. Like, I believe in gateway pain. I believe in gateway Mm -hmm. trauma. I believe in like gateway circumstances that where, like you said, you're forced to cope. Like, we're going to cope as humans. We need to. You have to. Your brain goes into survival mode. Yeah. And it's you're either going to cope in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. Like, Like yesterday, for instance, I was telling you shortly before we recorded, like my flight got canceled out to LA. Like, You were stressed. I was so stressed. I was anxious. I was like, shoot, I got two interviews tomorrow. I got to fly to Sacramento Mm -hmm. on Tuesday for another interview. I got events like later in the week back here in LA. I'm like, what am I going to do? Flights were getting canceled left and right. I could barely find anything. But if I were to go and hang out at the bar and get drunk, would that have helped me get to LA? No. No. And so long story short, I did what I could to make it happen Mm -hmm. to get here. But that's because I'm at a place now where I have learned these coping strategies. And I know that like, you gotta just focus on the solution and not worry Mm -hmm. about like the external and get myself grounded and and focus on what I can control. But I didn't know that as a teenager. Of course not. And and it's hard for me when I get the question, and I'm sure you get this question too, like what advice would you give to a teenager? (laughs) And it's like, it's hard because I could tell them what I know works now for me. But I know that these teenagers, they're not gonna wanna hear like, yeah, I think you should just you know, work out super mm-hmm. hard, you know, what people say is in a reflection of them. It's like all the stuff we, we hear, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to want to no. hear that. My advice would be for the parents. Right. And I know in your story, your mom ended up, your behavior got so out of control that she ended up shipping you off to your dad's and yeah. you guys had a really strained relationship. And when I heard that, you know, my instant thought was ding, 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 biggest mistake right there. And I want parents who are listening to this or people who are, who have loved ones who are addicted to drugs right now to understand that your connection matters more than your need and desire to control the situation. Had your mom And obviously we can't go back in time and know this for sure, but this is my anecdotal experience of working in treatment for the past 10 years and working with therapies and coaching and intervention and all the things that I do 
is that if she had prioritized her connection with you, had prioritized your healing, that you could have not gotten as bad as you did. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny, like once we healed our relationship and we kind of both like dropped the gloves and mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I'm sorry and I forgive you. And she was like, I'm sorry and I forgive you. And, and, and that sort of thing, she just looked at me and she's like, is there anything that you think I could have done differently? Like mm-hmm. outside of obviously kicking me out. And I was like, I was like, I wish you would have just looked at instead of looking at the fact that I was doing drugs, like ask me like, why? Yeah. Like what what, what was it about what I, what I was going through that in a way forced me to make those decisions? And, you know, you're right. Like just kicking your, your kids out, you know, just for a few mistakes when it comes to like pot and stuff like that, like it's probably not the best answer. I think there's obviously so many other things you can do beforehand before getting to that point where you have to set yeah. more, a more permanent boundary. And mind you, like I, I say now, I think she did the best that she could because with given the tools and what of she course. knew, because she was emotionally unavailable. She'd just mm-hmm. gone through this this traumatic divorce, like I mentioned, where now she's continuing to fight with my dad over custody, going to court, doing all the things which I can't imagine how stressful that must have been for her. And then also back in the mid 2000s or early 2000s, like pot was like, so bad. Like that was, it wasn't, it was way more stigmatized than it is now. Right. And, and so a lot's changed since then, but yeah, certainly when I talk to parents now, like I always like try to, I mean, as much as I don't have the experience as a parent to, to talk, I can talk from the kid's perspective, like, like love on your kids. Yeah. Like your kids are, when, when your kids are struggling like that, they already know that they're a piece of crap. Mm -hmm. They're already feeling that. Trust me. (laughs) Like I've been there. They already know that, that life's hard. They already know that they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. They already know that they're not going to be successful to keep going down that path. I mean, that's very obvious to yeah. them. There's an amazing book on this by Dr. Gabor Mate, who I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with, yeah, yeah. who wrote the book In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. If you haven't read that, I highly suggest it to anybody and everybody. But he wrote a book called Hold On to Your Kids. Mm. And it is such a good book. So for any parents out there, please read that book. It will change your life. And it does. It just talks about forming that connection before there's a problem. So that way, when there is, that bond is there. Because I will tell you, I'm working with a family right now, and both of the kids have issues. And, you know, the mom is just like, well, I don't know how we got here. And I'm like, well, it's crystal clear to me (laughs) how we got here. You know, and I don't say it in that way. And obviously I'm gentle and we're we're letting things unfold slowly, but she's becoming more and more aware about how her patterns of behavior and her dysregulation affected her children. And then before she knew it, it was like too late to do the work. So start when they're little, start healing yourself and foster these connections so that way your kid's connection to you is more valuable than it is to their friends. So that way your opinion of your kid matters more than the the bully kids who are going to be little shits. And I know I'm a parent of two daughters, one of whom is special needs, and this is my biggest concern. I want her to know that I love her so much and to believe all of the things that I'm telling her more so than what the mean kids at the school are going to say. You're spot on. I think one of the other things that's so important, and I experienced this myself, is like the importance of modeling. Mm -hmm. Because it creates cognitive dissonance, I believe, if you don't. Like, for instance, when I was younger, 
you know, my dad was always telling me to to eat healthy and, you know, not have sweets and all these things, but yet I'm watching him mm-hmm. eat the sweets. With the bag of chips, right? Yeah. And so you got to think about if you, if parents are telling their kids to be respectful and mm-hmm. to behave themselves and be kind and loving and all the things that obviously a, a parent will want their kids to do. If, if they're in a house where two parents are constantly fighting all the time, like the kid's going to look at that and say, huh, wait a minute. Like I thought that, like they, me being nice and kind must not be that important because my own parents who are telling me to do this are, are fighting. And again, I'm not a parent, but I, I witnessed this firsthand as a kid and it created so much confusion in me that when I was hearing one thing and I saw another, I, kids are like, all right, well, I'm going to follow what I'm watching, not necessarily what mm-hmm. I'm seeing. Our kids are so perceptive too. Like they are little sponges. My oldest you know, we were driving through downtown LA and she saw the homelessness crisis yeah. and she was asking me questions about it. And, you know, a, a few weeks prior, she had asked me like why I won't let her watch TikToks and things like that. And I had said, honey, because once you see something, you can't unsee it. And it's my job to protect your brain for as long as possible. And she was like, okay, like that kind of, that made sense to her. And so we're driving through downtown LA and we're talking about the homelessness problem. And then we moved on and we were heading off to Disneyland And she said, mommy, remember that one time that you got that homeless woman food and gave her $20 and a fresh pair of socks that you had in the car? And I said, yeah, what made you think of that? And she goes, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And so our children are just little sponges that are picking up all of these messages. And again, I think one trauma that is really prevalent in our society today is growing up with unhealed dysfunctional parents. And I don't think we want to look at it. And I don't think we want to talk about it. Right. Because there's this big disconnect because like, from what I understand, that generation just didn't talk about things. They didn't go to therapy. Like you were taught to to not talk about your feelings and your emotions. And now our society, like that's the thing, right? Is you want to be open with how you're feeling. You want to go to therapy and, and do the work. And I think that's obviously very important. I think, but that's created this gap right? Where parents who need to do some healing work of their own, like you said, just aren't because that's their normal. And now they're raising kids who are growing up in a different world. And this is their normal that they should be, you know, that being themselves and opening up. And I think the easiest way to kind of bridge that gap is for parents, since they're the ones that are fully grown and everything and matured, to do some research and start to look into like the effects of healing and look starting to look back at certain things in their past that might be influencing their current behavior and then maybe look at with their kids like how that's playing out. When it comes to personal hygiene, who has the time to read that long list of ingredients on the back of the bottle? Some ingredients I can't even pronounce. If you're like me and you care about what goes on your body, then it's time to try native personal products like I did. Every native product is thoughtfully formulated to keep you feeling and smelling fresh all day long. Best known for their aluminum-free deodorant, Native wants to help you practice safe sweats, which is why they keep their ingredients list 
bare naked with ingredients that you understand like coconut oil, shea butter, and baking soda. Native deodorant checks a lot of the boxes, 24-hour protection, naturally derived ingredients, a smooth residue-free application, and over 10 cents to choose from. Native's coconut and vanilla scented deodorant has been a fan favorite for years and other scents include lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, or even unscented. I personally love the coconut and vanilla and the lavender and rose. Recently, Native has partnered with Baked by Melissa with a collection of scents inspired by Baked by Melissa's delicious cupcake creations. From tie-dye vanilla cupcake, mint cookie cupcake, fresh peach cupcake to ginger lemonade cupcake, they make sure that your day is a little bit sweeter. Now's the time to make the switch from an antiperspirant to native. When you visit their site, you can discover all of their fresh scents and maybe even try out one of their moisturizing body washes while you're at it. Smell and feel fresh all day long with native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedo.com slash RFR or use promo code RFR at checkout. That's nativedeo.com slash RFR or use promo code RFR at checkout for 20% off your first order. It's so important. What we resist persists. It's handed down generationally and it's up to us to heal it. And so, you know, while I said in the beginning that, you know, I don't, you said that you had mismanaged your pain and I said, I don't think it's your fault. It is our responsibility to choose healing. So I know for you, you ended up in jail. Your disease progressed pretty quickly. You got sober young, just like I did. And you ended up in jail. And you had to face this choice of like, do I heal myself and take responsibility for my life or do I stay the same? Yeah, you're right. I went to jail when I was 21 years old. At the time I was suicidal. I had a horrific opiate addiction to where I was snorting three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin every single day to the point where half my left nostril was missing. I had damaged so many relationships. I had 21 jobs at that point as well. I was a convicted felon because I got busted selling drugs. And, and people often ask, they're like, like, what happened? Like, how did you get from the kid who was just recreationally smoking pot to the kid who's now behind bars and had this horrific opiate addiction? And it just, again, was like just continuing to stack these poor habits, poor mismanaging my own responsibility, I guess is the right way I want to put it, in changing the way that I was dealing with a situation. And so I progressively started to smoke more pot. That led into me selling more of it. And then like you mentioned me getting kicked out of my mom's house, that created even more pain, more trauma, barely graduate high school. I'm seeing my friends go off to college, I'm not. So again, it's reinforcing the what's wrong with me mentality. Like why me? So I just said, like, and as we know, like when you get down that path of addiction, if one area of our life is bankrupt, we want to bankrupt everything else, right? Yeah, you're like, well, fuck it. It's all going down in flames. <laughs> right. So I might as well over. just pour the gasoline on the fire. And I started experimenting with Coke like shortly after I graduated high school. And for me, the kid who had no self-esteem, no self-confidence, um, was super depressed. When I did a line of Coke, I felt this euphoric feeling. I was like, wow, like maybe that girl will say yes, not you know, maybe I will make the team, like maybe I will do all these things. These, these thoughts just came in my head that gave me all this, this power that I never had before. The problem is like the power wasn't real, it was fleeting. 
right? Because once I came down off the Coke, like I was just disempowered like I was from before. The other thing too, is I had crippling anxiety growing up. I mean, I've been on every antidepressant medication for anxiety that exists. So I started to do more Coke every day to the point where I was doing like an eight ball of Coke and Coke and anxiety go about as well together as like somebody lose, trying to lose weight and eat pizza <laughs> every day is how I tell it. This doesn't work. It's not going to happen, right? It's not going to work well. And I ended up getting crazy panic attacks. And again, this is at a point in the early 2000s where mental health wasn't talked about like it is today. Anxiety isn't talked about, let alone panic attacks. I had no idea what a panic attack was until I ended up in the emergency room. Until one night, I'm driving home, high on Coke, high on weed, smoking cigarettes, or just eating like a cheeseburger or something. And my heart starts racing. I start getting these, this pain in my chest. My face goes numb. And at this point, I'd already buried a couple of my friends that I grew up with because that was like a thing. Like friends of mine like died early. And I was convinced that I was going to be one of those kids because we, we often joked around in our friend group that, you know, if, if you're older and you're not allowed to party anymore because you have a family and kids, like what's the fun in living? And so I was like, man, well, maybe I am dying. So I remember driving home or driving to where I was living at the time, which is my friend's house. because I was sleeping on his couch and I run in, his mom is there because my friend had gone off to college and I'm like, help, I'm like dying. I'm having a heart attack. And she looked at me because I'm like, you know, a teenager. She's like, what? She's like, no, you're not. She's like, you're fine. I'm like, no, I'm dying. Go to the emergency room. I run into the emergency room. I'm like, how? I'm screaming. Like, Alexis, like, I kid you not. I'm screaming, like, help, I'm dying. And they're like, sir, like, sit down. And I'm like, I'm they're like, sir, you're not dying. If you were dying, you couldn't talk like you are now. Like, you're fine. You're going to be fine. And so they end up bringing me back like hours later. They hooked me up to like equipment to test my vitals and look at my heart and everything. And they were like, like what drugs are you on? And I was like, nothing. They're like, sir, you're not going to get in trouble. Like, we just need to know, like, what drugs are you on? And I told them, they're like, all right, so like, what are your, what are your daily drug habits like? And I explained it to them. And they're like, all right, we're looking at your heart. And for a kid that does as much as you do, you have a really, really good heart. You just have really bad anxiety. This is a panic attack. And I didn't even know what that was. Like I had to go and buy a book. This was it was embarrassing at the time. Buy a book, like how to handle a panic attack. And so I would bring it with me in my car. And whenever I would get too high and have a panic attack, my friends would be like, Doug, pull your book out. Because <laughs> I'd have to, I couldn't drive. Like I would start having a panic attack when I was driving. I'd have to pull over, they'd drive, and I'd be in the back seat, like shaking, shaking, like reading this book. I mean, it's funny as I look back now, because just knowing what I know now and how far we've come in talking about things like that, I know that there's hope now for the future generations to have the proper tools to hopefully not go through what I went through. But it got to a point then that you would think like, okay, I'm, I'm in the emergency room having panic attacks. Got this book I got to read to pretty much tell me how to like help myself when I can't help myself, right? That I would be like, all right, let me change my friends. Let me change my environment. Let me stop doing this. But again, like we talked about at the beginning, like once you're caught up in the thick of it, you don't know how to. And I had also developed this sense of family with my friend group and the drugs and selling the drugs and getting validation and love from that because I didn't really have that connection at home, so to speak, because I was kicked out of my mom's house when I was 16, kicked out of my dad's house not too long after, after I graduated high school. So I needed to find connection in whatever way I could. And that came from selling drugs, doing drugs and the kids I had around me. So at that point, one of my friends was like, hey, like I have this Percocet, you wanna try it? And I was like, sure. 
And the same monkey that came off my back when I first started smoking pot is the same monkey that came off my back when I took that Percocet. I was like, wow, I can smoke weed and do drugs and not have a panic attack. Like, awesome. Little did I know that I was just creating this habit that would nearly kill me and would completely destroy my health. And we all know the story, if you're listening to this, if you've ever uh, experienced painkiller addiction, you know how this goes if you do it every day. Five milligrams turned into 10, 20, 40, all the way up until, I, like I said, um, not too long ago that I was doing three, 400 milligrams every single day, having to do 150, 160 milligrams just to get out of bed in the morning. And as I, my addiction got more out of hand, so did my, my drug dealing, that got sloppy too where I was, people were robbing me. I was using a lot of my profits to buy drugs. I was using a lot of my profits to just spend tons of money at strip clubs and just doing things that I know I shouldn't have been doing because I owed this guy money. Like it wasn't my money. He was lending me pot and I was supposed to pay him back what I, what I sold. And I just was spending what he lent me, which is not, not good business, right? And everything came to a head for me on Cinco de Mayo of 2008. I was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal, had a half pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash in the glove box. And I had a busted headlight that I've been meaning to fix for months. But as we know, like when you're in the thick of addiction, all you care about is who you're doing drugs with, where you're getting it, when you're doing it, what you're gonna listen to, what you're gonna eat afterwards, nothing else mattered. And so a police officer was running radar and I decided it was gonna be a great idea to flash my high beams at him to hide the fact that I had a busted headlight. Well, it gave him a green light to pull me over because that's what, you know, when you're flashing your high beams, you're alerting somebody, there's, a pol there's police, right? Pulls me over, my heart just sinks into the pit of my stomach, my heart's racing and I thought my life was over. I just knew in that moment, Alexis, that, that things were done. Pulls me over, comes up to my car, I stammer to get my, my registration and my ID to give to him. One thing leads to the next, he searches the car, finds a half a pound of pot and the $2,000 in cash. And I remember just sitting in the back of that police car in handcuffs, like facing felony drug charges. I was like, man, like, how did I get here? Like, how did the kid who just wanted to be loved, how did the kid who just wanted to make the team, how did the kid who just wanted to be successful, like how did the kid who just wanted to like be a good kid, like how did he end up in the back of a cop car? And I, all of my bad choices and things I had done came before me. And I thought about the times that I lied to, to people in my life. I thought about the times that I did horrific things to my family, you know, whether it was stealing stuff or manipulating them for money, like whatever it was. I thought about like just the depths I would go to, to fill my addiction, the depths I would go to, to make myself happy in a, in a way that I thought was good at the time, but clearly wasn't healthy. And I thought my life was over. But that day, which in the moment, and this is really important for people to hear, that I thought was gonna be my, my greatest setback became my biggest blessing. It saved my life. And a few months later, I go to court September of 2008. And the judge, I had thought through the book at me, he convicted me of the felony, which is the possession with the intent to distribute marijuana because they found a bunch of pot, like I said, the money, and they also found a scale. He sentenced me to five years in jail, but suspended everything but 90 days, five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. If you looked at me, he's like, Doug, you're, you're young, you're 20. He was like, this felony conviction, this is back in 2008, where again, things were much more stigmatized. He's like, this felony conviction is gonna haunt you the rest of your life. 
He's like, I'll make you a deal. I'm like, deal? I'm like, what, what deal? What do you mean? Like, how is this a deal? I'm going to jail. He was like, if you complete everything with, without messing up, you do your time, no misprobation appointments, no failed drug tests, you do your community service, you pay your fines, you do everything without messing up. At the end of the five years of your probation, you can come back to court and I'll take the felony conviction off your record. And at the time I was 20, I didn't think I was gonna live to see my 25th birthday. I just was like, all right, man, like whatever. Like I didn't, didn't think anything of it. I reported to jail a few weeks later, it was a week after my 21st birthday. And as people can imagine, given my past and what I've told you about how I carried myself as a kid, I was anxious, I was depressed, all the things I was. And then on top of all of that, I had this horrific opiate addiction to kick. And so when I walked through the gates of the jail, I cried because I didn't want to go in. But when I left, this is crazy, I cried because I didn't want to leave. And the first thing I did when I got into to jail was I had to detox. So it was like two to three weeks of having the worst symptoms of the flu possible, like every day. I know. Oh. I did it twice. Yeah. It's awful. It's, oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. And it's so cold in there. And especially having to do it in front of like other like grown men. Oh. It's like, it's the most like humbling thing you'll ever have to do. I was in protective custody, so I can't relate to that, but it is God fucking awful. Oh, it was bad. And then my soon-to-be cellmate, who's since recently passed, was sitting there playing Scrabble, and he looked at me. And he could just tell that I struggled with self-confidence. My shoulders were, were rounded forward. I spoke very, you know, very quietly. And just he could tell there was something going on where I was just lost. And he looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club is kind of how I like to describe him, just, just to paint a picture of like how fit this guy was. And he was just like, dude, when you get through your detox, you're going to start working out with me. I was like, dude, there's no way. Like, if you seen me, like, I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like, there's no way this guy's working out. And he's like, all right, man. And so a few days later, this conversation changed my life. And again, like, this is just my experience. And this might not relate to everybody, but I think there's some takeaways in this, whether you take it all for yourself or not, right? So we were sitting there and we were talking in the cell and he was asking me questions about my story. He's like, so like, why are you here? And I was like, oh, my parents got divorced and girls rejected me. I was, I was blaming everybody else for my problems. And he looked at me and he was like, quit being a bitch. And I was just like, huh? Like, obviously that's, you never wanna be called that no matter where you are. And it certainly wasn't what I wanted to hear but in a way it was what I needed to hear. And this is why, like, and again, the context of this, I think is what is really important. It was for me. He was like, you're blaming everybody for your problems, but yourself. He was like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through that aren't in jail. And I was like, man, you're kind of right. And he was just essentially telling me I didn't have all the answers. And, and at this point, the drugs had been out of my system a bit. And so I was starting to think a bit more clearly. And I was like, man, he's kind of right. Like I have had so many jobs, I've damaged relationships. Like what was my role in all of this? And he was like, you have two choices. You can be a man, look yourself in the mirror and say, you got yourself here and it's up to you to change your life. Or you can go be you know, a victim and go cry in the corner and say, woe is me and blame everybody else for your problems. He's like, which do you want to do? And Alexis, I felt him powered for like the first time in my life because 
I had just had this guy come into my life who had, had no skin in the game as far as my life, was telling me things that I needed to hear at the time because he was he was right. Like a lot of what I was doing was I was caught up in that same subconscious mindset, like we were talking about those same patterns, but I didn't know it. And he helped me realize that. Mm-hmm. He helped me become aware of like, all right, like your life sucked. There were some horrific things that you went through that happened to you, but it's your responsibility to change the story. Yeah. No, I agree. I had a um, similar situation, you know, facing six years of prison time. I did fuck up. So I was given a suspended sentence, fucked up. Thankfully, they gave me a second chance instead of doing the six years. And I'm glad that you didn't have to go back and finish your five. But I was in treatment and I was fighting tooth and nail. Like, I was just like, I'm different than all of you. You guys have issues. I don't really like, you know, the whole thing. I was like too smart for my own good, you know, could talk everyone around in circles and was just just a nuisance like in treatment. And here I am given this like beautiful opportunity and and I'm sitting there like giving um his name is Robert. He since has passed from his addiction, but he had like four or five years at the time. And I'm in a big book study and I'm just like, you know, talking out of my ass, like being so disruptive. And I'm sitting there talking about how I'm just like physically dependent and all of the things and that, you know, I'm not really mentally hooked. It's just like once I started, I couldn't stop. And it started with a surgery and then I just, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, Alexis, most people have surgery and don't become junkies. Like most people, like he just started like railing into <laughs> me, you know, and that didn't work for me. For me, that just like created more shame. It was like a few months later when I ended up relapsing that I kind of had that like come to Jesus moment on my own where I was very clear that like the drugs and alcohol and the people weren't the problem, that like my thinking was the problem. And, you know, I think that for some, a tough love approach like absolutely works and can motivate you and inspire you. But I think for many, it it like doesn't. And I think it's dependent on the person. I think I view myself in like parts and I view my addiction as like my protective part. Like it, it was there to like keep me safe. You know, I had so much pain and so much trauma and like that part of me I needed in order to make it through my adolescent years. And I'm so grateful that like it stopped in adolescence, although that protector part came in in other areas throughout my early recovery and sometimes still rears its ugly head today, which is why I continue to like work in recovery and do the things that I do. But I think that, yeah, again, it just goes back to this whole like choice theory. And I think as a society, we just we tend to put all of the responsibility on the individual because we, we're in a hyper-individualistic society that tells us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to, to like change our lives and you can do it. And it just, it doesn't factor in like the societal and personal trauma and the varying degrees of that. And then you combine that with like your genetic makeup. And for some people, it can be a recipe for disaster. You know, so I'm glad that that worked for you. And I just think that, you know, it's like, it's different for everybody, you know? For sure. And that's why, like, sometimes when people ask me for advice, I don't want to say I have a hard time, but I'm very careful in how I word things because I know and I respect that what happened to me was was pretty rare. 
you know, given the odds were highly stacked against me, given from what I came from, being the fact that I was a convicted felon, being the fact that I had never been clean from drugs a day in my life without going to jail and then getting out and then never touching them again. I know that was rare. And with that said, you're right. Like not everybody responds well to the tough love approach. I'm actually like when I, I work with kids, like I train kids who are struggling with addiction or in recovery, they'll come to me and, and, and get personal training to at least help them cope in a healthy way. And I can ha somehow have a positive impact on them. And, you know, parents are always checking in with me. I'm just like, listen, like the tough love approach, like doesn't work with most people. Yeah, because I mean, like your mom tried it with you when you were younger. It didn't work. Your right. dad tried it with you when you were younger. It didn't work because it doesn't allow for that connection, which is just like the most important thing, I think, when it comes to people struggling with mental health or addiction issues. But for whatever reason, like what a gift that it worked then for you. And that um, from that moment, like you decided like, OK, I'm going to take initiative. I'm going to I'm going to change my life. You know, I always say we get to turn our pain into purpose. Yeah. And even though we had different routes of doing that, we both did that. And mm. it's such a beautiful thing when you can take an immense amount of pain that, and here's the thing too, that I, I just want to go back and say that like these things happen to us. And then as a result, we begin to traumatize ourselves. And of course, when we're doing like an inventory or whatever it might be, whatever your recovery looks like, it is important for us to look at like, okay, my subsequent behavior to these traumas that happened are my responsibility. I then went and hurt myself. And it, and, and so I think that, that that is important too. And at the end of the day, like no one is going to heal you, but you, you have to be willing to do the work. It's just, you know, what type of support do you need to get there? So yeah, we both have the same message of turning your pain into purpose and that's what you've done. And so I'd love it if you could talk to our listeners about your podcast and about how you're doing that today. Yeah. And, and I think you're, you're hitting on something that it's very important. Like I think that we do have autonomy and responsibility mm -hmm. to make the proper choices to deal with whatever it is that we're, we're trying to heal from. Yeah. But I also think like you, like environment is big, like who you spend Huge. time with, right? If you're surrounding yeah. yourself, all the people you're surrounding yourself in, in your life are, they're negative, they're pessimistic, they're constantly like making fun of you or they're not mm -hmm. doing their own work. Like you're going to have a hard time doing the work on yourself because you're going to always like revert back to the older version of you because your environment supports that, yeah. right? And for me, the big catalyst was not only that conversation, but it was what happened afterwards and it was fitness. Like I talked about when I was a kid, I was always the the overweight, chubby kid who was not good at sports, even though I loved them. And I just was a guy who didn't work out. And my cellmate, after that conversation, I got inspired to, to work out with my cellmate. And to make a long story short, at the beginning of this, I couldn't do a push-up. I got down to try and do one and I collapsed. Could barely do one for my knees. Could barely walk, could barely walk up and down the steps because I was so overweight and I was unhealthy. I was smoking cigarettes at the time too, on top of all the drugs. And with my cellmate's encouragement and motivation, he trained me in there every single day during my 90 day sentence. And I was able to do a set of 10 pushups and run a mile by the time I left. Mm -hmm. And just things changed for me during that time. There was a time in jail where my dad came to visit me and we just were disagreeing about something. He started screaming at me in the visitor's room. 
And I remember just looking at him like, why are you yelling at me? I'm in jail. Like how much worse do you want my life to be right now? I hung up the phone, walked into the, back into the common area of cell that I was staying at. And I said to my cellmate, I was like, let's work out. He was like, you're actually initiating us to work out. He's like, what happened? And I just, from that moment, I was like, man, I can use this anger to my advantage. Like I could think about what makes me upset. I could think about what makes me sad and I can work out to work through some of those emotions. And that doesn't work for everyone. It certainly worked for me because I was able to process a lot of this stuff specifically when I was running, where I would run, there was no music in jail. So I'd have to process a lot of what happened to me or I would think about things during that time because there was there was not much else to do, right? And so once I had this, like I guess, spiritual awakening um, that I know people in um, AA and NA call it, I decided that I was gonna change my life. I mean, and, and part of me, a big part of me didn't believe it, but I knew if I like leaned into that part of me, like the part that thought of myself as a failure, the part of me that thought of myself as a screw up and all these things that I would end up becoming that. I was like, if I just could just have a little bit of belief and faith in the fact that I can make it if I do these things, if I continue to work out, if I continue to better myself, if I continue to stay away from certain people, it gave me a chance. And so the day I left jail, I cried because I felt this huge amount of peace in my life that I'd never felt before. And I went up to my cellmate. I was like, how can I ever repay you? And he just said, don't mess up and pay it forward. And he gave me a, a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. Mm. So I never forget where I came from, got out, lost a bunch of weight, became a personal trainer to help other people use fitness to change their lives. Because I, I feel like I had a gift. Like I knew that I could relate to people. I could relate to the people who looked at themselves in the mirror and said, I, they, and they said they didn't like the way they, they looked in their clothes or the way they thought about themselves. I could relate to the person that was too insecure to go to the gym. I could relate to the person that was afraid to ask the person out at the grocery store. I could relate to all those people and I could help them use fitness as a tool to improve their self-confidence, fitness as a tool to improve the way they feel about themselves, fitness as, as a tool to improve their relationships, fitness as a tool to improve the way that they deal with their mental health. And shortly after I started training, I built a really successful training business, thankfully, and time flew by, the felony came off my record. The conviction came off my record back in January of 2014 because I completed all the, the rules that the, the judge gave me. And it, it really inspired me to not just train people, but to share my story to help others. And that's what inspired me to write my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free, to give others hope that they can make the most out of their second chance. And then, you know, since then, I've just been on a tear to help people through my books, through sharing my story on podcasts like yours, and then also through my own podcast. Like my podcast is called The Adversity Advantage, which you came on, which Essentially, it's a tool for people to to use to help them turn hard times into good times. Not necessarily that when you go through something painful that all of a sudden, like it's going to become like the greatest moment of your life, but more like how do you reduce the half-life of that pain or what you're going through? So I bring on subject matter experts and we talk about neuroscience, we talk about addiction, we talk about mental health, we talk about anxiety, and I bring on people that are subject matter experts in those areas. And I also bring on people who have incredible stories like yourself where you can share your truths, where you can share your experience to give people hope that if they're going through a hard time, that they can turn it around as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's a beautiful thing when we start to feel those little bits of inspiration and it does get better. You know, I think it took me a couple of years into my sobriety to really get there where it's like, 
you know, something painful would happen in early sobriety and it would just throw me off for so long. And now it's just kind of, I always give the wave analogy. Like I spend so much time swimming into the waves that were just thrashing me around. And with the tools that recovery has given me, it's now it's like I just swim with the current. Like I just go with it. Like life can get really hard and really challenging, but you know, we have these little moments of inspiration or these things that hit us or these things that soften us. You know, when we stop allowing the world to harden us and begin to allow it to soften us, our life changes. And that's the biggest takeaway that I hear from your story is that like you could have allowed jail to harden you and to turn you into a meaner, tougher person, but instead you chose to let it inspire you and soften you. And that's just such a a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Where can everyone follow along with you on social media? Thank you so much for having me. One thing I wanted to touch on really quick, like Mm -hmm. you said, you talked about like how I didn't let like jail harden me and that sort of thing. I mean, I want to remind people that recovery is hard. Like life is hard. And a lot of people think, like, oh, well, you don't, you're not using drugs anymore, so life must be easy. Like, no, I, I still experience the same stuff. Yeah. I still get anxious. I'd say it's harder. Yeah. It's harder to do it sober, trust <laughs> me. I still get stressed. I still yeah. get anxious. I mean, I went through a bad breakup um, a couple of years ago. Like, things, things happen, yeah. right? But what's changed for me, and I think you, you said it beautifully, is like the acceptance part. Like, you, mm-hmm. you made the, the wave analogy. Like the acceptance part and knowing that like this is all happening for me, for me. in a way. Yeah. And sometimes that we don't want to hear it because we think it's kind of Pollyanna, but there's no other way to, to think about it. And that how I deal with it, making sure that I have a good core group of people around me and, and knowing that I'm not alone. And also knowing that even though somebody might've done something messed up to me, doesn't mean I need to do something messed up to myself or to somebody else. Yeah, my sponsor said to me in the early days, she said the sober path, the spiritual path is not the easy path, but it's the path that is so much more worth it. And I just, I live by that. Yeah. Yeah. And then with all that said, if people want to find me um, and connect, the best place is on Instagram at Doug Bobst, but there's also my website that's DougBobst.com where if you want to check out my books or some other interviews I've done or more about me, it's there. And then my podcast is called The Adversity Advantage. And it's available wherever you listen to or watch your podcast. Thank you so much. This week's affirmation is, I am worthy. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor. Follow along with us. Leave a review. It means so much to me. There are new episodes of Recovering From Reality every Monday, and you can follow me on social at Recovering From Reality or visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com. 